This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Previously on Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. We immediately took this as a, a, as a missing person report and acted that way. But it got more serious as it got dark and more people were contacted and, and nobody seemed to know where she was. So it got to be a little more traumatic and then of course we, we involved the media uh, to help locate her. Um, and then we started our investigative process. 35 FBI agents were assigned to the Mahalovic case. 100,000 man hours had been logged. Practically everyone involved in the investigation were clinging to hope that Amy would be found alive. I'm John Walsh asking for your help. If you've seen this child, Amy Mahalovic, please call 1-800-THE-LOST. There is a reward. So, so you're confident this guy is... Well, the, apparently, we've talked about this, apparently a lot of people are confident. I mean, he's on... Um, 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 He's not doing it for free. Somebody's paying for him to be down here like this. Right. And and he was only supposed to have been down here for six weeks. Six weeks. Now we're going on two years. I'd like to think maybe that's maybe what started Amy to go. The story is, you know, I'm trying to buy a gift to, uh, to make my mother happy. So I think that's maybe where it started from. That's how he got her comfortable? Well, that's how or she, just, she just wanted to go out of her way to try to make Margaret happy. This quiet upscale community is totally unaccustomed to this type of trauma. The Mahalovic abduction is on the minds and lips of everyone in town. And authorities fear that with each day that passes, lessens the likelihood of her safe return. In Bay Village, David Lane reporting for the 10 o'clock news. But whatever the explanation is, it's, it's not simple, you know, so... We picked up a number of items, the significance of which we're not sure of at this time. But all these items have been sent to our forensic laboratory in Washington, D.C., and we're awaiting word as to what, if anything, is of evidentiary value and whether or not it fits or coincides with anything that we have previously developed in this case. First uh, couple of four or five days, you know, you spend 24 hours a day crying your eyes out and saying, why, why me, why me, why my Amy? And I guess there is no answer to that question because uh, this is proven it can happen anywhere, anytime. But um, after a while, you still cry. Bay Village Police and the FBI have devoted over 100,000 hours while investigating over 3,000 leads in the case. With, with Margaret leaving and uh, uh, her passing, then I'm the only one left. Welcome to the 16th and final episode of the Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic podcast, a Slow Burn Media LLC production. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and when I say this is the final episode, that does come with a caveat, as I do have some bonus episodes for you to look forward to during the hiatus of Season 1 to Season 2. After four months of podcasts and a year of investigating, I have to be honest and say that the answer to the question 
that this podcast posed of who killed Amy Maholovic still remains unanswered. Is there hope that technology will catch up with the killer and that they will one day be able to close this chapter? Yes. But unfortunately, this case is not simple, and therefore we will most likely not have a simple answer. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you want an answer to a question more than anything, but there is actually no practical way to get it? I thought this podcast might be able to get some answers to some long-held questions, and really, I am more confused now than ever. The problem with Amy's case is the fact that it's 29 years old and there really has been no answers to what it was that led to her abduction other than the mysterious phone call. I mean, who can call 10-year-old girls with a ruse in place and convince them that they would be doing what was nothing more than some innocent trip to help their mom out? I mean, how does this person return to normal life on the October 29th, 30th after murdering and sexually assaulting a 10-year-old girl? Who could manage to kill a child and go back to everyday life? Did they? With this being the 16th and final episode of the Who Killed Amy Maholovic podcast series, there are some important numbers to go over because as we look back at Amy's case... There are a lot of questions that remain unanswered and why it has remained unsolved for 29 years. Let's start with the tips. 10,000 tips. 28 Christmases that Amy has been gone. 10,000 plus days the suspect has remained free. Over 100,000 man hours and counting have been devoted to this case. Millions of posters were distributed across the country and the world in 1989 and 1990. There have been over a thousand suspect interviews. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of articles and news stories. Hundreds of thousands of downloads of just this podcast. 29 years of red herrings. Amy Mahalovic's case has received a lot of local and regional attention. But when this case first hit the news due to the highly unusual ruse that was used in her abduction, there was another case that was already capturing the minds of America. And that was one of Jacob Wetterling. There was something about his case that the national attention uh, brought that Amy's case never seemed to garner. And I'm not sure why that would have been, but Margaret was a fixture with Patty Wetterling on daytime television. She just didn't get the nightly news coverage like on a, say, Peter Jennings broadcast or, uh, you know, NBC nightly news type of show. It just wasn't there. The coverage for Amy was strictly regional and local. Despite all the efforts of the Amy Center and spreading the word that this girl had been missing for, you know, as many days as she was, the case just never did seem to attach itself to the national 
zeitgeist. And that is actually one of the things that is really cool about what's coming up with the documentary series on Investigation Discovery that will be covering Amy's case and a few other murders that occurred around the Lake Erie area. And I participated in this documentary as well as James Renner, who you've heard on this podcast, as well as Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast. He's also been on this podcast as well. And we, you know, all believe that this case can be solved and we do all have our own suspects but you know when it boils down to it it is one of those cases that until it is solved you know we will not rest and I've attached my name to this case James is attached Nick's attached and anybody that is you know looking for justice you know, feel free to contact any one of us or the Bay Village Police or the FBI. But we all want justice. We all want the same thing. And there are a lot of people out there, the Amy Army, you know, there are people that really, really want to see this case solved. And it isn't just for the closure for a family, but it's a closure for a community and a law enforcement even uh, that has been basically fighting a you know endless battle for nearly 30 years so until this suspect is in handcuffs I'm never going to say that this case is you know solved or anything along those lines and you can garner your own interpretations from this podcast through the interviews that I've conducted, through the, uh, you know, notes that have been associated with the shows. But, you know, again, these are my interpretations of what I'm experiencing. And if you have a different feeling on what the case has been and how you think it is going or where it's going or who you think may be involved, you know, we all want to know. So, you know, feel free to reach out at any point. And, you know, again, this is one of those cases that it really is going to be up to the public to bring the answer. And, you know, that's where we stand. So let's just go over some of the clips that we've played throughout the series and discuss some of the things that will eventually lead to the arrest and conviction of this perpetrator. When I met with Chief Spetzel, I did ask him if there was anything that would have counted somebody out, you know, sexuality or, you know, interests. And he had this to say about that. Whoever we feel has factors and circumstances that make them an interesting suspect, that's who we'll we'll look at. Um, That could be from the get-go, it could be thousands of people because they're all look-alike. It could be that we weeded it down to this many or this many. Um, we don't dictate it by lists or numbers. It's just whoever's there, we're going to look at them. And we'll go by circumstances and facts. And we always let the facts drive it. With any kind of missing child, you, you kind of work out in concentric circles from the family. So you obviously, if you talk to the family, you look at the family, you know, where were you, what was going on, you know, do all those typical things that you do that are 
very uncomfortable for a family when they're missing their child. They're grieving. They're distraught, and yet you're asking them questions that kind of, you know, would indicate that maybe they had some involvement, but that's part of the process. Not not comfortable, um, but they have to be done. So really you kind of had investigations going, looking at the family, and then you're following these other facts that you know from the, the uh, friend of Amy's. Definitely uh, at least two, possibly three of her friends had information on this meeting that she was going to have after school with this individual to go buy a gift from her mother. In fact, uh, they talked about that uh, she had $45 to spend and she was going to go to the mall. So there's some pretty specific details within that conversation that she relayed to her friends. True crime author James Renner has been an invaluable resource within this podcast as well as in Amy's case in general because it was in 2006 that he brought the case back to the forefront of the media by his uh, writings with Scene Magazine as well as his book on uh, his search for Amy's killer. Now James has uh, his own theories on who this killer may be, but when I did sit down with him on numerous occasions, I did pick his brain and wanted to know how it was that that this person was able to convince her to do this. It's just bizarre in, in the <clears throat> sense that, well, one, how he was able to get her to actually go along with it, mm-hmm. and then two... The fact that he had tried it before with other girls. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 becomes, in my mind, the most important clue is he before Amy's abduction, he was calling um, a number of other girls that were Amy's age, kind of looked this similar in in appearance, and uh, the, these other girls were from North Olmsted, which is one township south of of Bay Village. So uh, the key to finding out the identity of Amy's killer is figuring out how the girls in North Olmstead intersected with Amy in Bay Village because they must share some sort of uh, habit, you know, uh, of, of going someplace. And because this, this man, whoever he was, had to have known all these girls and had to have had a way to get their phone numbers. So uh, there's a couple ways in which they do overlap. Uh, one of the ways is the Lake Erie... Um, uh, nature Center, which is in Bay Village, right? The Little Nature Center. Um, all these girls had visited the Nature Center in the weeks leading up to Amy's abduction, and at the time, there was a log book that the kids could go in and sign their name, number, and address in order to get on the mailing list. And some of these girls did that. So, was he connected with the Nature Center, and did he see these girls walk in and get their numbers that way? Another way in which they're connected is by one of these top suspects who the police didn't even know about until after my book came out. And uh, I I fought to put a specific name in the book, and the editor didn't want me to put it in because he's like, this name only appears once. Do we really need it? I'm like, you never know what's important, so let's get it in there. And it was the name of Amy's writing instructor at Holly Hill Farms, um, which is where she took horseback riding lessons. And she had a very specific kind of odd last name. And after the book came out, one of the girls from North Olmstead reached out to me, one of these girls who got the call from Amy's killer. And she said, that name of Amy's writing instructor, I had a male math teacher in Rocky 
in uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, in North Olmsted, a male math teacher with the same last name. I wonder if they're related. And I looked into it, and sure enough, the girl who got the call in North Olmsted, her math teacher had the same last name as Amy's writing instructor. They were brother and sister. So he would have, you know, the thought is he had visited the stables where his sister worked and run into Amy there. Oh, I yeah. mean, the case is a rabbit hole. I mean, obviously, the, like Mark said, and I agree, and you agree, that they wouldn't continue to pay Torsney the money that they probably are paying him a significant amount. I mean, it's a guy who caught Whitey Bulger. So, yeah. you know, he's not doing it for free. So he's got to be getting somewhere. And there's got to be something that he's got that says we're on the right track. I would think so. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that I think the prosecutors and, and police might be putting, you know, the rolling the dice on are, uh, uh, and, and what might be keeping them going is this things like this arrest of the Golden State Killer, you know, where we've got new ways of using DNA. And, you know, all these cases, these cold cases are being solved now by using DNA to track down distant relatives of the killer because they're able to get that mitochondrial, the, you know, the DNA that's passed down through, um, you know, I think the father's side of things. And uh, so that gives you a spread of like, well, the killer is related to this group of people from you know, Decatur, Illinois, or, uh, or Indiana, or wherever Decatur is. And uh, so that gives you at least a place to search and people to talk to. And that's how all these cold cases are getting solved. So if they do have some sort of DNA from Amy's body, I think soon, and soon being like the next year, uh, we'll be at a place where we'll be able to narrow down enough to figure out who this person's potential family was, and that'll give us an idea of which suspect to look at. One of the most important interviews during this podcast has been with Special Agent Phil Torsney, who has since retired from the FBI but has been brought in on a part-time basis to assist with the Amy Mihaljevic case. He was one of the original FBI agents on Amy's case in 1989 and has been invaluable to assisting the investigation and his knowledge on the case is remarkable, and this is basically my conversation with what I had to ask him. Her father said that she wouldn't have ever gone with somebody that she didn't feel comfortable with, or at least didn't know. Um, so it does beg the question on how many times and what he used to right. groom that right. comfort zone. Right. You know, this case has had ups and downs, ups and downs, but... But, you know, one of the things, at least she told somebody about that phone call. Uh, otherwise, it's possible, I mean, she would have gone up to that shopping center if she had really kept it a secret. And we wouldn't have known her purpose in going up there. She told associates about the gift and the phone call. And, you know, we're obviously, we've obviously looked at cases which have a similar um, setup uh, because of, of that because Amy told people about that. If we hadn't known that, and that's why we still look at cases where there's missing girls or girls, young girls that have been the victims of uh, homicide, where it's really unknown what led up to them being abducted. You know, whether it was just somebody who, 
you know, it was a spur of the moment thing or whether there's a, a planning process like we have here. And, and in this case, it's somewhat an, an unusual case in that there was prior planning like, like this. And we've talked to, you know, FBI behavioral people and, and a lot of people about that kind of thing. You know, the planning in uh, the prior contact and, uh, you know, what the thought that this person put into this makes it somewhat different than the normal case um, where, you know, a young girl is abducted and murdered. Yeah, I guess one of the important things here is, is just because something's been published uh, through some media outlet, whatever it may be, uh, it, it doesn't mean we're not looking in other directions. And... Uh, we, we need additional information. It doesn't mean by the publication of that kind of thing and putting out names out there, we have additional information here uh, in addition to what's been published. And we base our investigation on, you know, the facts we have. And a little thing that might not have anything to do with, with what's been published previously in regards to another tip, more information, or another suspect may add to the information we have here and have knowledge of uh, that will help solve this case. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not here all the time. But, you know, one of, one of our goals, uh, recent goals anyway, has been to get some uh, nationwide publicity. We've had a ton of publicity here, you know, in, in the Cleveland area, Bay Village, Ashton County, Ohio. But, uh, you know, it's possible that the individual who did this is living somewhere else. And there's maybe a similar case in California or Washington State, you know, Florida, uh, that either a police officer might recognize from the past or a victim or a, uh, 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 you know, just somebody from another state that wasn't aware of all the publicity around here that's going to hear about this through, you know, this podcast or another uh, sort of national well, podcasts are international, so well, this will even if he's overseas, yeah. he will right Canada that kind of thing, because you know this seems you know initially it seemed like it was somebody who has no doubt familiarity with Bay, and and you know the rural areas southeast of here, southwest of here, but it doesn't mean a similar crime wasn't committed somewhere else, and there's some officer somewhere who took a report on something like this, uh, and that we we keep looking at those cases. Throughout the country, we've accessed various websites or, you know, uh, criminal kind of uh, uh, computer sites looking for similar cases with the, with the gift and the phone call and the, uh, you know, the age group of the young girl and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, we're, we're looking nationwide at this point. Yeah, it also doesn't area. mean, yeah, he's not just living in the area still, potentially. I mean, he yeah, could be anywhere people, in the... People move. He could have done this before, something similar before could have done it afterwards, could have gone to prison for something like this for a period of time, therefore stepped out of the public eye or stepped out of the uh, potential for getting caught during the time he was in prison. Maybe did 10 years, maybe did two years, maybe did 15, 20, got back out and started doing the same thing in another way. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins.
convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Well, this podcast is supposed to bring the attention that this case deserves and uh, hopefully will help provide the uh, publicity that you're looking for and uh, the closure that the community and the family needs. Good. So thank you again. All right, thank you. What I don't want to do, what I don't want to do is limit it, say something that would say the way, because we don't know the answer to that. Okay. That would limit calls in on an individual. It could be a guy who's uh, who's had prior sex offenses with young girls, but then it could be somebody who uh, has an, had a, a, a one-time opportunity and committed an offense. I, I don't. I'm not comfortable limiting limiting it to that because we want all that information. You know, we have some. You know, we have bait in the net to some extent. We have uh, stuff out there we look at that's important. And, uh, you know, we, we want information that somebody thinks is viable, and then we'll take it up and try to match it up with the, uh, the multitude of, uh, you know, intelligence information we have on file that might match something up. Throughout this podcast, you've heard from true crime author James Renner and his theories on the perpetrator on the Amy Mahalovic case. And I basically wanted to look back at some of the thoughts that he had on who may have been responsible for Amy's death and why it was that he thought this person may be the killer. How old is Dean Runkle at this point? I think he's like in his 60s, but he's he stayed fit. Okay. You know, he he he's fit. Um, but and and there and we're only on the the tip of the iceberg here, you know, about reasons why, you know, it might be Dean Runkle. I mean, there's you know he was investigated a number of times inappropriate relationships with students. He was found um, in parked cars with alone with students. One of the reasons, again, that the police don't really like him for it um, sometimes is that, you know. Uh, you know, they, they've told me, they're like, look, he, we know he was into boys, you know, why would he be into girls too? And what they don't understand is, and what any FBI profiler would tell them is if the adults interested in prepubescent boys, there's no difference in his mind between boys and girls. It's only after they hit puberty that they would pick, a, a you know, a boy or a girl in their mind, if they're interested in prepubescent kids, it doesn't make any difference to them. And in fact, we know that a number of girls from his classes have contacted me and said that he used to touch them. Originally, it was a, a student who said, I think you should look at my teacher, Dean Runkle, f- 
from uh, Amherst. And uh, so I started looking into Dean Runkle. And uh, did first he have of all, any reason to like? He just always had a feeling that um, that he was involved. Uh, that back in '89, when they released the composite sketch of Amy's abductor, this student saw the sketch and he said, "Oh, wow, that's my teacher. That's that's Runkle." And he told his parents and and uh, and. You know, he said, so So look into this guy. But a lot of people look like the sketch, you know. But what is it about him that made him so interesting to the FBI? Well, it goes back to those women that, that were called from, well, they were girls at the time, in, in North Olmsted that were called by Amy's killer. And one of the ways in which they were all connected was the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center in Bay Village. And um, the FBI agent that I spoke to believed that Dean Runkle had volunteered time at the Nature Center and would have been there to see the, the girls' names and, and phone numbers on that logbook and to, like, kind of, you know, scope these girls out so that he could call them later and try this routine. And uh, he actually called uh, a woman that Runkle worked for in 87, and she said, yeah, he was raising mice in the back of this convenience store in uh, New London. And he would take the mice, when there got to be too many, he'd take them up to the Nature Center in Bay Village, and they would feed them to the snakes. You know, how's that as, a, as an image of a, you know, of a creepy dude? Yeah, snake guy. So um, I looked into his background, and it's very odd. Um, first thing I found was that he grew up about a mile from where Amy's body was found in the middle of nowhere down in Ashland County. And it is in the middle of nowhere. It is. Um, and if you're from there, you know that County Road 1181, where they found her body, is kind of the perfect place to dump a body because you can do it in the middle of the night. There's no houses around to see you. And if any car comes along, you're going to see their lights in the distance, and you have a, a good three minutes to get out of there and never be seen. So it's just... It's it's a perfect place. So you would almost have to be from that area to know that. Yeah. What was it, 2007? Or no, it was 2008 when you and I went down there on the anniversary. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it is in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. You know what's funny is uh, my my memory is... You don't even remember that? I don't even remember that, man. Yeah. So we met at Bay Square okay. that day, and then we I followed you down... Okay to County Road 1181. Wow. And uh, you had a lot going on at that time. I mean... I'm sure. I, mean, I think you, that was around the time I was losing my job I, or something. And I was about five weeks away from losing mine because <laughs> <laughs> I got laid off time. about two weeks before Christmas. No, wait. That's so funny. Um, yeah, my, my, my memory is, uh, is shot for, you know, um, anything that's not like... The details of these cases. Oh yeah, or, or you know, luckily the details of of my family and kids and things like that. Well, I so. have video of it, so if you want. Oh, to, do you? Yeah, I actually have to. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so you'll be you like, oh gosh, that. I don't remember that, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was there. That's funny. <laughs> um, so, so Runkle lived, and you you lived right there. 
Um, you know, and and every day, Runkle has a compulsion. He, I th- I believe he has several compulsions, but one of them is running and walking. He has to do it routinely every day. And uh, every his route was uh, he'd do these like speed walking, um, even in the middle of winter, and it would take him down County Road 1181. Mm-hmm. People saw him every day, and in the so he was walking past that body every day. I think he was a trophy. I think he was just waiting for somebody to find it. And maybe, you know, um, and I'm not saying 100%. I want to make this clear. I'm not saying 100% that I know he did it. Right. I am saying 100% that Dean Runkle is a dangerous man. And that's because what I eventually come to discover is that he had had been investigated by a number of schools for improper relationships with students. He wrote a note to um, this prepubescent boy that was in one of his classes uh, asking for a blowjob, um, and this boy was kind of his his special uh, right hand, you know, teacher's pet type of thing for a while. Um, it's real, it's real creepy stuff. He was so originally he was grooming. Yeah, he's grooming. He was originally a teacher in Vermilion, um, and he taught there for I don't know fifteen years or so, and then that's where he met this boy that he was grooming. Um, and around the time that that boy became uh, an adolescent, be- when he hit puberty, um, and kind of cut off, he cut off the relationship with Runkle. It looks like uh, at that moment, Runkle stopped teaching there. Uh, he also paid this kid. He put like five thousand dollars in a into an account for him. So um, he quits teaching, and then wanders the country for two years. Um, and he, before he leaves, he tells people that he's dying, that he's contracted this rare disease that he says he got from um, scraping his, his finger on a piece of coral. With all the publicity that the Amy Mahalovic case has received over the years, there was one thing that Special Agent Phil Torsney wanted me to convey to the listeners, and this was his words uh, verbatim. Yeah, I guess one of the important things here is is just because something's been published uh, through some media outlet, whatever it may be, uh, it it doesn't mean we're not looking in other directions and uh, we we need additional information. It doesn't mean by the publication of that kind of thing and putting out names out there, we have additional information here uh, in addition to what's been published. And we base our investigation on, you know, the facts we have and a little thing that might not have anything to do with with what's been published previously in regards to another tip, more information or another suspect may add to the information we have here and have knowledge of that will help solve this case. You know, it is a very distinct curtain or whatever it was used for. It definitely looks like something maybe out of a hotel you know, duvet cover, some type of... Right, it, it has a distinctive, like, pattern to it from a bed cover. Look, maybe possibly originating from a bed covering, and um, we, we're still looking for somebody to recognize it. Right. Thing. At least the transformation from a bed covering into a, a curtain. And it looks like it was cut down to a specific size, you know, to cover a certain area. Maybe a doorway or maybe a opening in a vehicle or a truck or... Something possibly on a farm, uh, a barn. So, yeah, I appreciate you putting that up there. We all do. And if you can, 
somebody recognizes it and can let us know what they think about it. It only all these things. It just takes the right person, and I've said this before, to see it. And just because we've put it up before doesn't mean we shouldn't put it up again and get more publicity on it. And that's what we're trying to do. So the curtain uh, is more distinctive than the blanket, but it was two items found in that field and. Good possibility Amy was wrapped in something, and those are the logical items that we're aware of at this point. And both blankets had the same similar canine hairs. Right. Okay. They're similar, similar hairs. And you have had leads or tips come in in regards to that particular item. Yes. Yes, and we follow up on some are better than others, and some are good. We follow up on, uh, we get calls, we follow up on. You know, the thing that scares us is this guy, uh, you know, there's a chance he's still out there and doing the same kind of thing. And he's probably, you know, the logical step to contact uh, girls of this age now is through the Internet. When I met with Chief Spetzel, I asked him whether or not it was important to him whether he was the one to make the phone call to Mark Mahalovic when the perpetrator of this crime was actually in custody and finally going to face justice. And, and I don't have any personal stake in it that I have to do it. I just want somebody to do it. I want somebody to be able to call Mark and say, we, we, we think we've got the guy, and we're going to put some closure to this, and we're going to get this done. I don't care who it is. It doesn't matter to me. I just think he deserves that kind of closure. The community deserves that closure. And again, the guy needs to be locked up. It's the bottom line. Um, you know, as, as we sit here today, we don't know if this individual's alive. We don't know if he's dead. We don't know if he's locked up in prison. We don't know, uh, but we certainly want to find out. So however that happens, whoever does that, I got no personal stake in being the one to do that, certainly. I just want it done. And uh, I think, you know, you've talked with Mark. Uh, he's a great guy. He deserves that, family deserves that, and we deserve to get this thing closed up. So it's been 29 years since the abduction. You know, How do you see this case being solved? I see it being solved through uh, information provided by the public. I really do. You know, We have a vast amount of information, some of which we can piece together, some of it we can't. So I, I'm really of the belief there's someone out there who has direct or very closely direct information about who did this. Either they heard something, it's a relative, somebody confided in them, you know, uh, deathbed confession, something, someone out there other than the killer knows what happened. That's the person we want to come forward because then they'll be able to provide some clarity to all this information we have. We can, we, you know, we can put it together and make a case. I think that's how this is going to happen. It's hard to imagine that there will be any sense of closure if the killer is actually ever apprehended. But I did have to ask Mark Mahalovic how he felt if that was the case. That's always been, uh, we talk about that a lot. We think they're getting closer. We think they're getting closer. We don't know. We, that's always our uh, carrot in front of, uh, front of our face, you know, to, that they're getting close. And on that note, we are wrapping up season one of Who Killed Amy Mahalovic. I would like to thank the Mahalovic family for allowing me into their home to discuss this sensitive matter. I'd also like to thank the chief of the Bay Village Police Department, Mark Spetzel, retired special FBI agent Phil Torsney, Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast, 
Angela, who shared a very personal story about what happened to her in 1989. Amy's friend, Christy Gibbons. And true crime author, James Renner, who has been an invaluable resource to this podcast and has given many hours to not only helping with this show, but uh, helping investigate the case in general. A large amount of questions regarding Amy's case remain unanswered. And obviously the most important being that of who was responsible for her death. This podcast set out to answer that question of who killed Amy Mahalovic. And I've let the listeners make their own conclusions on whom they believe may be responsible for Amy's murder. There have been moments where one suspect looks like he has been the guy, but next thing you know, you hear from her father that one of the top suspects has apparently been ruled out. The truth of the matter is there is nobody in custody and nobody that the authorities have named as a person of interest. I am in this to the end, so I will say it's the end for now. If there are updates and new information, I will be right there with a new episode to add to the series. Amy's case will never be closed until the killer is prosecuted and put behind bars for the rest of his life. I will be back for a second season of Who Killed in early 2019, and you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3 for any new updates regarding Season 2, as well as Amy's case, as I will continue to update my listeners as well. Thank you again for listening to the Who Killed Amy Mahalovic series. I appreciate all the kind words and the hundreds of thousands of downloads, and hopefully... With this little bit of attention, this case will be eventually solved. But if you've enjoyed this independently produced podcast, please help support independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the bottom left on whokilledamymahalovic.com. You can also make a donation through the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. Thank you to the listeners that have helped keep this podcast going as any amount is appreciated. And you can also help support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts that will also help keep the show in the spotlight. If you have any information regarding this case, please contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234. And the FBI is still offering a reward of up to $25,000 for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mahalovic. So anyone with information concerning this case, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again so much for listening to the Who Killed Amy Mahalovic series. And to all my listeners, be safe.
3 a.m. The comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 